If you will, turn with me to Matthew 16. We're going to continue our series on baptism, and as you know, we're in our fourth part in one sense. The first part, though, being in the morning on one Lord, one faith, one baptism, really defining what we all agree upon, both Baptists and Presbyterians, if you will, or Baptists and Presbyterians and Reformed, what we all agree upon. And then starting, this is really part three of where our disagreements lie, and I'm just continuing to lay some foundation for the overall argument that will be made. So I want you to look with me at Matthew 16 and verse 13. Tonight we start talking about the covenant people of God, namely the church. So Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing as we study it. Father, we ask that your spirit would illumine our minds. That you would help us to understand your word, specifically what Jesus means by the church. That we would understand clearly what it is you're doing among us as your church now. What you've done throughout the generations in your church. We pray that your spirit would protect us from error. As you help us understand the word. And that your son would be exalted. In Jesus name, amen. Well, the last two weeks, I have provided a syllogism of my argument for baptizing believers and their children. And the syllogism goes somewhat like this, two premises and a conclusion. Premise one, all those who are members of the new covenant people receive the covenant sign of baptism. Now, Reformed Baptists, or Baptists in general, and Presbyterian and Reformed folks all agree on that premise. Premise two, Believers and their children are members of the new covenant people. Now, I'll define that a bit more in a minute, but this is where we disagree. We disagree on premise two. Believers and their children are members of the new covenant people. Conclusion. Thus, believers and their children receive the new covenant sign of baptism. So all those who are members of the new covenant people receive the covenant sign of baptism. All are agreed. Believers and their children are members of the new covenant people. Not all are agreed. Conclusion, thus believers and their children receive the new covenant sign of baptism. Because Baptists do not believe the second premise, that the children of believers are members of the new covenant people, they reject the conclusion. Now, when I say that, I want to be really specific. Baptists will only agree that their children are part of the new covenant people if their children are professing faith. 
In that case, you might say, well, my child professes faith, therefore my child is part of the new covenant people. Okay, that's fine. But when I say believers and their children are part of the new covenant people, I mean believers and their children are part of the new covenant people even prior to the children professing faith. So that's what the Baptists don't agree with. Thus, as I've maintained so far, the question really is, who are the proper subjects of baptism? And that question really boils down to our understanding of God's covenant and God's people. That's what it boils down to. Do we have one covenant promise being visibly administered in and through all the post-fall, in other words, after the fall, biblical covenants or not? In other words, is Christ being revealed and given to believers in and through every biblical covenant or not? Is Christ the sum and substance of every biblical covenant? I spent a couple of weeks on that already, arguing that Jesus is the sum and substance of them all. So now I want to ask a second question that really follows on that. Is there one covenant people across all the biblical covenants? Is there one covenant people? across all the biblical covenants. In other words, what I'm asking is whether there is one covenant people of God, one church that is being gathered to Christ in and through the various biblical covenants. When we speak about church members, which we all do, when we speak about church members or covenant people, we're speaking about parties to the covenant. Are the parties to the biblical covenants the same in the Old Testament biblical covenants, and in the New Covenant. Are the parties the same, or are they different? Was there a change in the parties? Please hear this. This is where the point of departure between the Presbyterian Reformed and the Baptists begins to show up. Now, when I say that, our disagreement really begins in our respective view of the New Covenant. However, it is seen... The disagreement is seen or shows up in life in our respective views of the parties to the new covenant. Do you guys understand that? We actually disagree about the nature of the new covenant. But we don't see that until we get into the practice in the church with regard to parties. That's where it shows itself. We can talk about it, but we don't see it show up until there. The majority of Baptists believe that the new covenant has brought about a substantial change in God's work among his people. Thus, the new covenant people are radically distinct. Now, when I say radically, I don't mean like we're all excited about it. Like, you know, let's get radical or something like that. Radically, the radics at the root, at the root, that they are radically distinct from the old covenant people. The Baptists believe the new covenant is substantially different and therefore the makeup of the new covenant people or the parties of the new covenant or the visible membership of the new covenant church is substantially different. So what do I mean by that? Well, the reformed speak about the church in the old Testament and the new Testament in two ways. Okay. And they actually started doing this in response to Rome who only spoke about the church in one way. Rome only believed in the visible church. That's it. That's all there was. The visible church. Even if you were an unbeliever, if you were going through the sacraments, and I'm not talking about an unbeliever as an infant unable to believe or a toddler unable to yet believe. I mean, you could be a 30-year-old unbeliever who's rejecting the faith 
And yet, if you are a part of the visible church going to the local cathedral and taking the sacrament and participating in it, you are still a part of Christ's church, if you will, savingly, in as much as you are receiving that sacramental grace. You say, now, there's a lot I would have to ferret out there to get really technical, but the general point is, all they had was the visible church. That's it, the church you could see. The Protestants came in and said, no, there's the visible church, the one you see and experience and participate in, and the invisible church. Namely, the reform talk about this. The invisible church being thus what you can't see. The true believers among us that you can't see. We don't mean there are two distinct churches. Actually, Cardinal Bellarmine, one of the main arguers against the Protestant movement and the Reformed specifically, he actually said, well, that means you all believe in two distinct churches. Like there's this invisible church out there and there's this visible church and there are two distinct groups. And we're saying, no, that's not what we mean. It's two ways of speaking about Christ's one church. The visible church participates in visible activities. It's seeable. So think about this. The visible church preaches the gospel. There are no invisible gospel preachers. You guys understand that? Okay. The visible church preaches the gospel. The visible church prays. The visible church gathers for corporate worship. The visible church participates or administers the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The visible church does discipline. The visible church mutually cares for one another. The visible church might buy a building together. The visible church has visible members. Like, I can see you all. There you are. I can name you. I know who you are. You're visible. And I do visible ministry. Even my preaching is a visible ministry to you. That's what I do. You can identify the professing believers and their children who are a part of the visible church. You can identify them. The invisible church, the invisible church is not something we can see. You can't see it. We can't see it because it's made up of the company of the elect. Those who are born again. The true believers among us. We cannot know who among us comprises the invisible church. Can't know that. We can only know who among us comprises the visible church. That's all we can know. As a pastor, I do visible ministry to visible members via visible means. I do no invisible ministry, right? The Holy Spirit does the invisible ministry. Holy Spirit does all that. I preach the word, and these words come out, and they hit your ears, and it reverberates, however that works, and you hear sounds, and you make them out, and you know what the words mean. But my words reverberating in your ears does not change your heart. The Holy Spirit does that work. In other words, someone can belong to the church externally, externally, like you all are right now, and visibly, but internally, in their hearts, and invisibly, their hearts are far from God. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Externally, the Pharisees are a part of the people of God. Internally, their hearts are far from him. And we're saying that professing believers and their children 
are members of the visible new covenant church, and thus they receive the visible means of grace from the visible ministers that God has given. That's what we're saying. Baptists deny that the children of professing believers, as I said before, apart from them exercising their own faith, are members of the new covenant. They're not members of the new covenant unless those children credibly profess faith. That's what a Baptist would argue. The Baptists argue that even if the children of professing believers were once members of the old covenant community, the new covenant is radically different in that all its members are born again believers. All its members are elect. All its members are regenerate. So before we can answer the question, are children of professing believers members of the new covenant church, the new covenant community, the new covenant people of God, are they parties to the new covenant? Before we can answer that, we need to ask, is the new covenant church? This is the question we need to ask first. I'm going to answer that question about children next week. This is the question we need to answer first. Is the new covenant church made up of visible members of God's new covenant people, some of whom are internally unbelievers? Internally, not born again, not elect. Can a non-elect, unregenerate person be a member of the visible New Covenant Church? Can a non-elect, unbeliever, be God's people in some sense in the New Covenant? So tonight I want to deal with that one question. That's it. Can an unbelieving, non-elect, unregenerate, not born again person be a member of the new covenant people of God? Can it be a member of the new covenant people of God? Is the membership of the church or the biblically defined new covenant parties, the community of God's people, the same in the Old Testament and New Testament, or has there been a radical shift? What does the biblical evidence demonstrate regarding this question? In other words, what I'm asking is, I hope you're hearing this. In the new covenant, can there be parties to that covenant who are in some way in the new covenant and yet are unbelievers? Is that possible? What does the biblical evidence demonstrate? Look at Matthew 16. Again, and verse 17, after Peter has professed Jesus, and this passage, obviously in Matthew 16, carries a lot of freight on a number of topics, and I'm not going to get into all of them. I'm not doing a pure exposition here of Matthew 16. I just want to get to one point in Matthew 16, and it's after Peter professes Jesus as the Christ, Jesus tells Peter, if you will, his mission statement. Jesus tells you what his mission statement is. What is it? Look at verse 18. Sorry, I'll just go to verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, what does he mean? What does he mean? What does he mean by the word church. I'll build my church. 
What would the disciples understand by that term? I mean, were they familiar with that term? You know, they don't ask Jesus, Jesus, what in the world is a church? Right? So are they familiar with that term? Is the church talked about in the Old Testament? Why don't the apostles ask Jesus, what is the church? Well, the word that Jesus uses here in the Greek, and this is going to become important, the word that Jesus uses here in the Greek is the word ekklesia. Now, you probably heard me use that word before, ekklesia. The word ekklesia, roughly. Now, when I say roughly means, and every time you tell you a Greek word means something, all words have a semantic range. So you have to look at the context to see how the word is being used. Do you guys understand that? That's true in English as well. I love my wife. I love my dog. You understand I'm not using love in the same way. At least if I am, that's deeply problematic. Okay, you, you follow me. So all words have a semantic range. The word ekklesia roughly means the assembly or the gathering. It's why we call the doctrine of the church, whenever you go to the doctrine of the church in your studies, it's why we call it ecclesiology. It's the study of the ecclesia, the gathered people. We translate that word church from the German, actually, the Kirk. Yet, this word is not new to the New Testament. Was the word ecclesia used in the Old Testament? You're like, well, of course not, because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and not in Greek. You're right. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and not in Greek. However, there was a translation or a group of translations of the Old Testament from the Hebrew to the Greek that we tend to refer to as the LXX or the Septuagint. The Septuagint was quoted from in the New Testament Numerous times it was read by Jesus and the apostles. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that exists before Christ and the apostles. Over a hundred years before them, it was being read widely. The Septuagint uses the word ekklesia 96 times to translate the Hebrew word kahal. Okay, that's really helpful. Now you told me one Greek word translates another Hebrew word. Where are you going? The Hebrew word kahal in the Old Testament is the word for the assembly of Yahweh, the congregation of Yahweh. In other words, we use ecclesia, or the Septuagint used ecclesia 96 times to translate that Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for gathering or assembly, we translated ecclesia. So I want you to hear what's happening for Jesus' apostles. I will build my ecclesia. The ecclesia that you heard about 96 times in the Old Testament. The congregation, the assembly, the gathering of the Lord. I will build that. Let me give you two Old Testament examples of how this is used. First, look at Deuteronomy 9. So, You don't have to keep your hand in Matthew 16 if you don't want to, because we're going to journey around. But look at Deuteronomy 9. If you remember, Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the law. And it is the Deuteronomos. In other words, Deutero meaning second, Namos meaning law, the second telling of the law. It's given to the second generation just before they're about to go into the promised land. If you remember, the first generation is unbelieving. They die in the wilderness. Moses can't lead them in. So Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful and believing, are going to lead the second generation in the land. 
And before they go into the land, Moses is just basically going to say, let me review the law for you. Let me tell you all the way your parents screwed up. Don't do that. Right? And so he's going to go and review it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verse 1. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. You're to cross over to the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities greater and fortified up to heaven. Who's being addressed in Deuteronomy 9.1? Hear, O Israel. Israel's being addressed. That is the people of God coming out of Egypt. Right? The people whose God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh who delivered them. Hear, O Israel. Now, go down to verse 6. He's addressing Israel. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. Just grace, right? Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. By the way, Jesus will refer to the finger of God as the Holy Spirit in Luke. Side point. On them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the what? Assembly. Kahal in the Septuagint on the day of the ecclesia, the gathering of the congregation. Here we have Israel being addressed at Mount Sinai, in other words, referencing the occasion at Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly. They were the assembled, or gathered, people of God. They were visibly God's people. This was Israel as the visible church. Now, I say visible because we're also told that they were stubborn and unbelieving there. And God wanted to strike them down there. If you remember, while they're there, they're being called the church. God's talking about his gracious covenant toward them. And while they're there at the mountain and God's writing out the law, if you will, what are they doing? Building a golden calf and committing idolatry. Yet they're being called the church. The church of the Lord. This was Israel as the visible church. The reason they were all gathered visibly was not because they were all believers. They weren't all elect. They weren't all believers. That's clear from the text. However, they were all part of the visible assembly or the visible church. They were all parties to the covenant God made with Abraham and Moses. Now, that's not the only place. That's not the only place kahal in the Hebrew or ekklesia is used this way. I want to be clear about that. It's used 96 times, a variety of ways, largely all dealing with the congregation. Let me give you another way it's being used. But let me talk about Stephen first. You guys remember, Stephen is the first martyr. Listen to how Stephen understands this issue with regard to Israel at Sinai. In Acts 7.38, as Stephen is preaching just before he's killed, he says this. 
This is the one, speaking of Moses, who was in the congregation, ecclesia, in the church, in the wilderness, with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. Moses was with the church in the wilderness. This is the ecclesia in the wilderness. This is the church in the wilderness. It's speaking of visible Israel, the visible Old Testament church, the visible parties of the covenant God made with Abraham and Moses. This is the same way Jesus uses ecclesia in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18 and verse 17, if you remember, in Matthew 18, 15, he starts addressing church discipline. You guys remember that? And in verse 17, he says, if they will not listen to you, then tell it to the church, ecclesia. He's talking about the visible church there. The context tells you he can't be talking about the invisible church because it's the context of someone you're telling to the church about an unrepentant person in the church who you're putting out of the church. And you know it's visible because you have to be able to see that person and talk with that person and gather a group of people to do church discipline. We don't, for example, when we practice church discipline, somehow, you know, network link up to all the visible churches in the world and announce it, right? And then tell them, now, if you're a true believer, one of the elect of God, you can be present for this announcement, but if you're not, stay outside, right? We don't do that. This is the visible church in Matthew 16, 18. It's possible, or likely maybe, that he's using this the same way it was used by David in Psalm 40, verse 9 through 10. Now, he, I meaning that Jesus in Matthew 16, when he says, I'll build my church, is using this term, ecclesia, in the same way it is used in Psalm 40, verse 9 through 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. That's, by the way, great congregation, ecclesia, kahal. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation, the kahal or the ecclesia. That's probably the use not of Matthew 18, but of Matthew 16 which is what I want to get to. In other words, there's different ways this is being used. In fact, I believe it's Psalm 89, verse 5. I'd have to check that, 2 through 5, somewhere in there, to check that, where it's used of the company of the righteous in heaven, the congregation of the holy ones in heaven, or the church there. Further, we read in Psalm 22, and verse 22, that Jesus preaches the word in the midst of the congregation, the assembly, the kahal, the ecclesia, you say, Jesus does that in Psalm 22. Why do you say that's a psalm that Jesus is singing? Because Hebrews 2.11 says this, For he who sanctifies, consecrates, sets apart, and those who are sanctified, that's us, so he who sanctifies is Christ, those who are sanctified are us, all have one father. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I, quoting Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of your congregation. I will sing your praise. And this use of ecclesia, or ecclesia, or kahal, speaks to something more than the visible church. It speaks to something more. It speaks supremely about the invisible church. And Jesus employs it in that way in Matthew 16, 18. Why do I say that? Because I will build my church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it cannot merely mean the visible church. It can't mean merely the visible church. For example, let me give you a reason why. Sovereign grace is a visible church. Does Jesus promise in Matthew 16 that Satan will never overcome this particular visible church? No, he doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise that. Jesus isn't promising that to the visible church at Ephesus in the New Testament either, is he? They were a local gathering of the visible church who Jesus warns in Revelation 2 that if they don't repent, he's going to remove their lampstand. So their sin, or if you will, Satan, will in fact overcome and actually does overcome that visible church. The church at Ephesus does come to an end. So in Matthew 16, Jesus is promising that Satan will never prevail against the invisible church. He may take out sovereign grace, but he's never going to take out Christ's church. Never. The believers here may have to scatter somewhere else, but those true believers will never be overcome by Satan. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying your particular local church will never be overcome by Satan. So Matthew 18, ecclesia, visible church. Matthew 16, ecclesia, invisible church. The company of true believers or the elect that Jesus is building. Satan will never prevail over those who are internally, in their hearts, born-again believers, ever. He'll never prevail against them. He'll never overcome those who are invisibly united to the body of Christ, the elect, the true members of Christ's church, the true children of Abraham, both on earth and in heaven. So I'm arguing that we can speak of the church in more than one way. We can speak of the church as visible and as invisible. We can say both things. We can speak of the new covenant people of God internally in their hearts and externally. And we can see this pattern across scripture. But I'm largely going to make the argument from the New Testament. So here is really the argument. The old covenant church and the new covenant church have the same visible covenant membership. The same visible covenant parties. Visible, not invisible. Visible covenant membership. The same visible covenant parties. The membership of the covenant community, of the parties of the covenant, is both visible and invisible in both testaments. I'm arguing that someone can be a visible member of the church, externally related to the church. They can profess faith. They can be baptized. They can be communed. In other words, take the Lord's Supper. They can be under the preaching of the word and prayer. They can be a member of a local organized body of believers with elders and deacons and church discipline and not be a member of the church internally, invisibly. In other words, I'm arguing that the old covenant church and the new covenant church, in those both, you have visible church members who are parties of the covenant, but who are not true believers, not elect, not born again. So is that true? Is that true in both the old covenant church and the new covenant church? Those are the questions we wrestle with when we come to the various texts in scripture regarding God's covenant people regarding God's covenant parties. So I want to briefly just go over four quick strands of biblical teaching in the New Testament that gives us a more developed picture of the church in the Old Covenant and the New. So the first strand is this, 
And I'm going to read these texts so you don't need to turn to them. And you're saying, it's not because I don't want you to turn and labor through them. Write them down. But I'm going to read these texts for the sake of time. First strand. First, we see texts that speak of election, of election and vital union with Christ. Election and vital union with Christ. So let me give you an example. John 10, verse 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here are believers eternally secure in the hands of Christ and his Father. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Paul does define what God's purpose is. Here it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if the Lord's purpose for you is saving, if his purpose for you is election, then you will be called, justified, and glorified. Satan cannot overcome you and not overcome the work of the Lord. Can't. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Or 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power is guarding you for that inheritance. So clearly, there are elect, born-again believers who are united to Christ and cannot be lost. I don't know that anybody in the room, at least part of Sovereign Grace, disagrees with that. That was true in the Old Testament as well. I'll get to that in a minute. Second strand, we see the church discussed as a body that is only the elect. In other words, we see the church in the New Testament described as a body that is only the elect. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body, that's being the body of Christ and the church, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is, by the way, I would argue referencing both water and spirit baptism, but the emphasis here is on those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit or those who are saved in the body of Christ. Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That seems to be talking about that company of the elect. Why do I say that? 
Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Or here's another one. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, I point this out because I want to say, one, we all believe that there are elect people throughout the Old Testament, and only the elect are saved, and when they're elect in Christ, they cannot be lost. Second, we all believe that there are references to the church as the elect only. There are references to the church as those who are born again, elect, believers only. That's why the Protestants said there's this thing called the invisible church. Let me go on. Only those elect in Christ are saved. And the Old Testament church had folks who were elect in Christ. If they were not elect in Christ, they were not saved. That's that simple. Listen to Paul in Romans 9.27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And who's the remnant? Romans 11.5, those chosen by grace. Further, he tells us that not all Israel is Israel in Romans 9.6, but only the elect are true Israel. Only the believers in Christ are true Israel, the true children of Abraham. Only those who are elected and vitally united to Christ are saved. Are we clear about that? Okay. First two things we hear in the constant witness of Scripture Third, we see texts that address the visible church, the visible church, as a people who are united to Christ, to Christ's body, to Christ's church in some way, but who are not saved. Did you guys just catch that? For example, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. The vine, by the way, is a reference to Israel from Isaiah. You can go back and read that. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's talking to the branches. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Any branch in me, in me, that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, because of other texts of scripture, we know that clearly can't be saying people lose their salvation. So what is it saying? Is it possible to be, in some sense, united to Christ visibly and yet internally not Thus why you produce no fruit. When Paul writes to the saints, look at Colossians chapter 1. We'll look at this one really quickly. 
I just want you to follow these descriptions. I picked Colossians. I could have picked any of the epistles, but I picked Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Look at to whom he writes. Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Notice he's addressing the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith. Whose faith? The saints and faithful brothers at Colossae. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay. Now look at what he goes on to say about them in verse 13. He gives thanks to the Father always for them. Why? We'll just read verse 12, actually. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share, qualified you, the saints and faithful brothers, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13. He has delivered us. That means Paul and Timothy, you know, the two guys that are writing here together, and the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, look down at verse 21, talking to the same group of people. And you, faithful brothers and saints at Colossae, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's how you were once, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, listen to all the language Paul just used about them. In light of all that language, how can Paul say what comes next? How can he say what comes next to the very same people? Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, all that stuff's true of you. How can he say that? Because there are professing believers and their children. By the way, Colossians 3.20, he addresses their children. There are professing believers and their children in the Colossian church who will not persevere in the faith. He is addressing the whole church. And he knows some among them will not persevere in the faith. And why will they fail to persevere in the faith? For the same reason that anyone fails to persevere in the faith. Because they're not elect. They're not born again of the spirit. They're false professors. They look like the real deal for a time, and they fall away. Further, how can Hebrews address the church? Go to Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, now notice the label he gives them, holy brothers. We could translate that holy brothers and sisters, but you really don't want that because it's only the brothers or the sons who are heirs, and so when females are called brother or son, that's complimentary. That's saying you're a co-heir. But, you know, it's more politically correct to say brothers and sisters. Therefore, holy brothers, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, what's he going to tell them? That they're part of Christ's house. Look at the description. Go down to verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. That's the house God built to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Now, so you're holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling, and you're his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, how can he say to a group of holy brothers, holy brothers, you're going to share this if indeed you're believers. 
Go down to chapter 3 and verse 12. The holy brothers he just addressed, look how he addresses them in chapter, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Who is he speaking to? Brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, who? Brothers. Any of you brothers, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. By the way, this is all happening in a context in which he's comparing the church of the new covenant to the old covenant church in the wilderness. And he's saying they heard the gospel, they didn't believe, so they didn't enter their rest. Don't be like them. As if the two groups are made up of the same kinds of people, believers and unbelievers, elect and non-elect. The only satisfying answer to this is that there must be two ways in which you can be parties to the covenant. Look, you could say the other satisfying answer is Arminianism. You just believe that people can lose their salvation. I'm not doing a series on that right now, right in the middle of this sermon. But you know where our church already stands on that. We don't believe that that's possible for a variety of biblical reasons. That's another possible satisfying answer. As those who don't believe that's possible... The only satisfying answer to this is there must be two ways in which you can be parties of the covenant or members of the new covenant church, visibly and invisibly. Friends, the old covenant church and the new covenant church are being paralleled here in Hebrews as the same basic people with the same basic struggles who are receiving the same basic warnings. That's true in Hebrews 4, 1 through 2. They heard the gospel in the wilderness. That's what he says. They heard the gospel in the wilderness. Don't be like them. They didn't believe it. That's true in Hebrews 10. Listen to, oh, just look at Hebrews 10 briefly. I just want to establish who they're speaking to really quickly. Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Who are we speaking to? Therefore, brothers. Do you see that verse 19? Therefore, brothers, that's your audience. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now he's going to go on and he's going to give us three horatory subjunctives. Or it's a Greek way of saying three kinds of commands. Three commands. To these brothers, after he gives those three commands of the brothers, look what he says in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, who's the we? The brothers, including the speaker here, interestingly enough. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified or consecrated and has outraged the spirit of grace? In other words, if the members of the old covenant church were put to death for breaking the law, how much worse do you think the punishment will be for the new covenant church members who trample Christ underfoot. How much worse? That's why he goes on to say this, verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, now notice this quote. These are from the Old Testament. The Lord will judge his people. Not the Lord will judge people in the building who aren't really his. Who are the people being judged here? Those who reject the Christ 
in the visible people being called brothers, those who reject him, the Lord will judge them. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's talking to brothers. He's speaking this warning to the same group of people he just gave a set of commands to in light of the blessings of the gospel work of Christ. One more. You don't have to turn there. Listen to Matthew 18, 2, just this language. And calling to him a child, Jesus, put him in the midst of them. This is what Jesus did and said, and this is what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is arguing that only those who are humble believers can enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that clear enough? Only those, unless you become like this child and humble yourself, believing in Christ, if you will, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven, which is a circumlocution for the kingdom of God. It's another way to say that. You can never enter. Now listen to Jesus in Matthew 13, in the parable of the net. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 13 the mysteries of the kingdom. He actually does this in two different parables. I'll just deal with one. In the parable of the net, listen to what he says again about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven... Kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the same thing you can never enter unless you have humble childlike faith. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Okay, so it's like that. You fish, you catch a bunch of fish in your net. Some of them you throw out, they're bad. Some of them you keep, they're good. Now listen. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. The evil from the righteous in the kingdom of heaven. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there seems to be two ways to be related to the kingdom of heaven. Or the kingdom of God. Visibly and externally. Not necessarily elect and saved invisibly and internally, necessarily elect and saved. Now I'm going to beg your time because I've run over, and frankly, you're here, so you're gluttons for punishment anyway. Fourth strand, we see biblical texts of the church that speak of the church as local assemblies, local assemblies that have unbelievers as members among them. Churches of the Lord threatens to bring to an end if they don't heed his warnings. Think of Paul and Barnabas planting churches. Remember, they planted churches and appointed elders among them. Wherever they had planted churches, they appointed elders among them. In other words, churches, plural. These are local assemblies in various cities. One of those churches is Ephesus. Paul warns the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 17 and following. Jesus speaks about bringing the church at Ephesus to an end in Revelation chapter 2. Or think of the church at Corinth, another church, visible local church. There is some serious wickedness among them. You know the story, a man was having his father's wife. Gross on a number of levels, such that Paul says, even the unbelievers think that's disgusting, right? So what does he say to do with them? He says to put him out of the camp. Now listen, listen to how Paul speaks of sin in the camp. In the camp. Listen to how Paul draws a clear distinction between the visible church, those who are inside, and the world out there, those who are outside. Listen to this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You understand that? If you weren't going to associate with any sexually immoral people, you would have to leave the planet. You understand that, right? But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I, this is Paul, what have I, Paul, to do with judging outsiders, the sexual immoral in the world, those not in God's covenant people, the world out there, what have I to do with judging them? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge, those bearing the name of brother but are sexually immoral? Aren't you to judge them? God judges those outside, listen to what he says, purge the evil person from among you. I don't know if you heard that. There are clearly insiders to the church, yet there are false professors, evil people among us who must be purged. That language is also quoting Deuteronomy. Quoting Deuteronomy. And thus Paul speaking about the new covenant church in the same way as the old covenant church. This is how the apostle John explains how people went apostate. 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Or listen to how Hebrews employs the warning language from Deuteronomy 29. The language Moses used to warn the old covenant church about persistent and unrepentant unbelievers among them. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become undefiled. That's a quotation. I can go on in that passage. Beware of the root of bitterness as an unbelieving, unrepentant person in your midst causing trouble in the church. That's the point in Deuteronomy 29. That's what he's getting in Hebrews 12. So I've attempted to lay some groundwork that if, in fact, people are members of the visible church in the new covenant, they're parties of the new covenant, they're part of the people of God, and that can happen while still being unregenerate, non-elect, unbelievers. They are all these things externally and visibly. I have not argued, I've not argued that they are new covenant members internally and invisibly. As pastors, we administer the visible means of grace, preaching, prayer, baptism, Lord's Supper, etc., to all those who are visible church members. Visible church members. Pastors are commanded to give the covenant sign of baptism to all members of the visible new covenant church, to all members of the visible new covenant community, to all parties, to all visible parties to the new covenant, to all those who are visibly God's people. Why? We cannot possibly know who the invisible members of the new covenant are. Here's the thing that's important to remember. The only kind of members we have are the kind that we're able to see and thus to baptize. We can't see anyone's heart. We don't know if a person's elect. With that said, next week, I need to answer a further question. Are children of professing believers, because I've not answered that question yet, are children of professing believers, even before those children exercise faith themselves, members of the visible New Covenant Church. I'm not asking if they're members of the invisible New Covenant Church. Are they members of the 
visible New Covenant Church. It is manifestly obvious to all of us that professing believers are members of the visible New Covenant Church. We all know that. And thus we all agree that professing believers ought to receive the sign of covenant membership, the sign of baptism. They ought to receive the sign of welcome into God's visible church. And we all agree that even though none of us know whether they are members of the New Covenant Church internally, none of us could possibly know that, we don't know if they're members of the invisible church. We don't know. I have never baptized a single person who I knew because God had revealed it to me that they were elect. Ever. I've only baptized visible members of Christ's new covenant church. Never. Well, I mean, I hope I've baptized invisible members of new covenant, Christ's new covenant church. But I did not baptize them on the basis of knowing they were invisible members of Christ's new covenant church. But the question is this. Are children of professing believers, even before they profess faith, also members, visible members of the new covenant church? Are they parties to the new covenant visibly? Are they visible members of the new covenant church? Because even if you've accepted everything I've said so far, I have not yet demonstrated that biblically. I've not demonstrated that children of professing believers even before they exercise faith, are parties of the new covenant. I haven't done that yet. I've not shown that children are members of the visible church and thus deserve the sign of welcome, the sign of being received into the visible church, the sign of baptism. So that's what I'm dealing with next week. Are children visible members of the new covenant and, if you will, the new covenant people of God? All right. I gave you a long argument preparing you for that one question next week. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ and his salvation, for the kindness that he's shown us, for the fact that we have been subjected to the visible means of grace, that visible ministers have ministered the gospel to us, that we have been saved. We are thankful that this is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we are sober-minded as we consider the fact that there are among us those who will not persevere in the faith because they are not your people. Yet they certainly appear to be. May that not be us. May we be those who trust in Christ And persevere in the faith. May the warnings wake us up from our slumber and cause us to look to Christ, to trust him, and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.